This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I'm organizing my class for the rest of the year. Um, and I've been just, you know, going through like stuff that I've done last year during our, our big pandemic end of the year, where everything's mm-hmm. very done within weeks, which is really kind of fun to kind of like look back into it. And I noticed that with, um, in terms of like, how the sequence went over and how we had to cut things immigration came like in it was one of the last units so like we're talking about 1900 right and so then it made me think a lot about immigration and this whole concept of like being a nation of immigrants which is interesting and it was fascinating that it wasn't until like the last section of my course that we're talking about that like what are your what are your thoughts on this and isn't there like what are your ideas about the nation of immigrants that's so, you know, per- been perpetuated for a very long time? Well, first thing, I'm just proud that you have organization at the end of last year at the pandemic. I just imagine anything I find from last year is just like, it's, it's like chaos. Maybe like things are burned, like falling over. So good. I'm oh, I w- like- oh, my Google Drive, I have it color coded in a rainbow. And so I know like everything's in a unit. So I know if it's towards the end, if it's purple that that's it's, getting towards the end. It's like the one thing you could control about the world. So your, your, your Google drive. I need to control I, something. And so that's what I, you know. Yeah, I think I, I've heard like the phrase, well, first Nation of Immigrants is a, a book, right? By right. JFK, right? It's like actually a story. And so it's a whole narrative and way of talking about US history. And of course, you know, um, it's not just the facts that we put into, you know, you, that we, we tell in our history classes, it's the story we tell, right? And so one of those stories is the story of a nation of immigrants. And so it is very fascinating when you look at the curriculum to think about, oh, the nation of immigrants story starts in the late 1800s, right? So that's that's where it is. So feeling like a white story right now, right? This is when this is when the second group of white people show up. That's oh, kind of right. the way. And I, I should right? say, I guess we do talk about immigration when we talk about like, you know, the folks coming to Plymouth and whatnot. Right. But I think I think also that idea that we're a country of immigrants and we're a nation of immigrants is, is also problematic, right? Like there's a lot of flaws in that narrative. Oh, yes, um, to be sure. I mean, so first, I mean, we live on indigenous homelands, right? So that's first thing, right? It was, you know, immigrants were, if that's the term, were also invaders of indigenous lands. Black people, for many of them were not immigrants, right? They were uh, enslaved and brought here unwillingly, right? So those aren't immigrants either. And then oftentimes what we did in U.S. history is we just kept moving the border and making different people immigrants, right? So like, that really changed it too, right? And and so it's a little bit problematic. It does seem kind of troubling. And I just want to be clear, like I do my best to kind of like not talk like that with my students. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like, in terms of like our text, like that's where it kind of fit in. We do talk like, please don't, uh, don't think me <laughs> terrible. 
don't judge him. He just came out of a pandemic and <laughs> his Google Drive is color coded. No, right. I know you. I, I know you you really make efforts and all this. We all do though, right? It's hard because we're told we're kind of told these stories. I mean, Texas is a great example. So I did not know a lot about Texas history and I kind of dove in when I got here. And you know, you often hear about contemporary immigration issues from Latin America, from Mexico to Texas, right? But Texas's history is so problematic, right? Uh, it's it was obviously indigenous homelands that you know, quote unquote, explorers came to, right? And then eventually, the United States, you know, by force took Texas, making many Mexicans, many Tejanos and Tejanos people immigrant, you know, they, they all of a sudden the border moved on them. They were here, right? So many uh, people of, you know, uh, who are Mexican have been in Texas for much longer than Tex Texians. I think that's how you say it, which is white immigrants who came to Texas illegally because they were not supposed to be coming to Texas, right? Santa Ana actually like, and the Mexican government like had rules for immigration and white people kind of broke those rules and kept coming. And that led to a lot of the outbreak. So slavery so, is a big part of this story, if I remember. Oh, of course. Right. Which yeah, were, I mean, yes. Yes. That, Texas was just an expansion of the South, right? Westward essentially. And to create a slave, a lot of white people want to create slave states. So, so you start digging in like the, the clean, story of the nation of immigrants falls apart real quick. And there's a more complex story of immigration and whose land this is and who has the rights and who has power. I think that we need to explore in, in, in classes and around contemporary issues. A lot of times that's our Latinx students that are associated with immigration, but it's a very complex history. Now, I'm assuming that we have some folks who are, who are going to be able to come on and talk with us a little bit more in detail about how this is covered, I guess, in, in a high school setting. So we would like to welcome into the podcast, Edgar Diaz and Matthew DeRue. Welcome. Hey, thanks Hello. for having us. We're thrilled to have you here. We're really happy to be here. Thanks. We also do like to hear, we like when our guests say that because that makes us feel uh, warm and cuddly. <laughs> so speaking of who are you, do you mind giving us a little bit of a background on who is Matthew or Matt DeRue? I don't know if we're on the... the you can say Matt. <laughs> yes. And, and Edgar Diaz, tell us a little more. Hi, so I'm Edgar Diaz. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Miami. Currently getting my PhD in language and literacy learning in multilingual settings. And so a lot of my research uh, centers around Latinx identity, bilingual youth, and other marginalized groups as well. And I'm Matt DeRue. I'm an assistant professor of digital literacies for multilingual students at the University of Miami. And I currently have the pleasure of serving as Edgar's uh, chair, dissertation chair, and his advisor. So can you, can you tell us each a little bit about your, uh, your backgrounds in education? So you're both at the University of Miami doing really great work now. What, what experiences do you have, whether, and I believe that I'll leave that very open to each of you. Yeah, so I've been teaching, I'm, I'm currently teaching now, actually, high school again, um, geography and government, which I love. Uh, I've been teaching for now five years in LA, South Central, but also in Little Haiti and Miami. So mostly secondary. So a lot of my experience has come working with culturally and linguistically diverse students, and also a little bit of experience working with student teachers. So overseeing them, helping them become better teachers as they enter the world. Hopefully, hopefully some of the community members in Little Haiti can listen to our teaching the Haitian Revolution episode that we just we just talked about recently. 
For sure. Well, and so I am by training an English teacher, and I taught、uh, high school English in the U.S. context for three years. But I spent ten years in China as a language teacher educator and as a like a, as a teacher educator in the Chinese context. And so it was, you know, that time in China when I be, when I started to identify as bilingual. I had taken French in high school, but it was, you know, from an audio lingual method. It just it wasn't it wasn't really a great way to learn language. But so、uh, my time in China. Really helped draw my attention to issues of language and how language affects literate practice and how teaching and learning is is connected to those things. And so, I, but I, when I got to Michigan State, where I was a doctoral student, I was doing field instruction, supporting student teachers, and、uh, there was a need for social studies. And so I became a social studies、uh, field instructor, supporting social studies interns who were preparing to teach in the social studies, and became involved with the、uh, the Kufa community through a, a fellow grad student at Michigan State. And just have found the social studies disciplines of the social studies to be a very welcoming space for language and literacy education. Dan's a big Kufa person. He does like the Kufa. <laughs> yeah, so many of our guests are are members of Kufa, which is the big kind, of, the scholarly arm of I think the of social studies and the National Council for the Social Studies. You know, one thing you both have a background and interest in language. And I often feel like that is a, a largely neglected topic in social studies because what an important historical topic, right? It's, it hits everything, right? The history of language, right? The、uh, geography of language, the、um, economics maybe of language. I like to go through all of the different the, the civics. He's going to say the、right? social studies of language pretty. <laughs> I know, I know, but I like the social like studies of everything. It stands. But there is right, and so like that's that's a topic I think we don't explore enough, and it's because. You know, oftentimes I think、uh, in in state standards and people have power over those. Oftentimes, there's such an English only kind of approach, even it, whether it's said or not said. I mean, how how do you all approach、uh, language as a topic of study to understand and think about? Well, I think you know, in terms of language, in the social studies, yeah. I mean, I think、um, you know, when I was. First, getting started, you know, as as an early career, you know, doctoral student researcher, Paul Yoder had done this meta synthesis of published work of language studies in the social studies, and it, it was like, I don't know, maybe fifteen, twenty pieces. It wasn't really large, and I think you know we're always challenged to seek out how we can expand our fields and and look for opportunity spaces where we can make a significant contribution to our fields, and so it just it seemed really ripe. For language to be、uh, a focal point of examination, especially within you know the the National Council for Social Studies and, and the Kufa community. Yeah, and I also noticed you know being a teacher of secondary students who were emergent bilingual, and also my experience, you know that you can't learn your history if you don't know the language. And I feel like that was a big problem as to why students and my students especially were not, you know, really engaged into history. It's like why would I care about another? You know history, or why I can't even read that history. So why should I? You know, so there's a lot of disengagement, and so I believe you know if a history teacher is able to you know really utilize language and really like tackle that with content, it can be very beneficial to the student to actually learn their history because these kids want to learn history. Like I wanted to learn my history, but the language becomes a barrier, an unnecessary barrier, especially if we're not trained to really deal with that. So you've recently been published. In theory and research in social education, for your article, Latinx's in contention: a, syst- a systemic, functional, linguistic analysis of 11th grade U.S. history textbooks. So, first of all, as Dan likes to say, that's no easy feat. Congratulations! Thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Do you mind telling us a little more about your、uh, about your research? Yeah. So, this paper 
focuses on three textbooks, uh, U.S. history textbooks specifically that are used in our state. And so when we think about, you know, what messages are being sent to students in the last 15 years, because these textbooks are kind of been used and adopted each, uh, each couple of years. And so what messages are being said in U.S. history textbooks and how are students are internalizing those messages um, about Latinx people, right? So we see that the media is always, you know, criminalizing the Latinx identity. You know, they're coming to the border, like the caravan, the immigrants are coming from Mexico. And so we really get demonized. And so what is, is the textbook adding to that? How, what are students learning from that? Especially because U.S. history is such a, a pivotal course that you have to take in order to graduate in our state. So it becomes more of like what uh, messages, values are being said and how are, are students going to internalize those? And as you guys had noted at the top of, you know, the podcast, you know, these shifting borders, right? So what often happens in history textbooks is that contemporary issues are not always uh, closely connected to their historical, you know, antecedent. And so we kind of look at the way that language uses how, how language positions different people as actors or agents uh, and having agency in their own practices. And, and what, really what we found was that for Latinx identity, you know, they don't get to be the sayer. People are saying things about them or they don't have the agency uh, to advocate for themselves. Rather, other people are positioning them in ways that they themselves would not want to be positioned. It reminds me a lot. We had Dr. LeGarrette King on in recent episodes talking about historical Black consciousness. And he, he talks about teaching through Black perspectives and through Black people and historical actors. And I would guess that's oftentimes what's not happening in the textbooks, right? And this is not surprising. And, you know, figuring out what happens in classrooms is such a challenge, right? There's, we, we can look at standards, we can look at textbooks. It's really hard to go in and watch a ton of teachers, right? And figure out what's happening. And so textbooks are one of the ways, because we know teachers often turn their students to textbooks. So what, yeah, what other messages did you find? What are some of the specific things that came out of these textbooks that uh, we either really need to confront and get changed? I mean, I would argue just get rid of the textbooks totally. This is a, probably a better option. Right. Uh, Not a bad idea. But, <laughs> right. But the narratives can still remain easily, right? I mean, some of those same narratives are still there. So what, what are some of the other things that the narratives and specific cases that you found in the textbooks? Yeah, so uh, we looked at using systemic functional linguistics as our framework and our analysis that they use verbs, like right? different types of verbs to actually their position, Latinx people or, you know, the U.S. in different ways. And so we have action verbs, saying verbs, sensing verbs, and being verbs. And so when we look at action verbs, a lot of times the U.S. is positioned as, you know, this power, this authority, whereas uh, Latinx people are either passive where you need the U.S. to help them or they're either aggressive as to we need to be protected from them. So there really isn't no in-between well, for them. We also saw that verbal or saying verbs were not really used or given to Latinx people. So it was never like Mexico said or the, the general from Mexico said something. So that means they have no voice essentially in the, in the textbook. And so that gives everything to the U.S. that they get to justify their actions because they have the voice. So that's one more thing. Also being verbs more like come off as very objective and factual. But when in, in really in reality, it's actually very subjective. But that is the was, you know, Mexico is this. It makes it a statement that students might not really pick up into that. And I think that the last thing was like sensing where we see a lot of feelings, emotions, what's being felt by each of the different um, actors. And so we often see that 
that Latinx people are looked at and that they're always in conflict with something, either one another or with the U.S. And so, again, positioning them in negative ways overall. Yeah, and just to add to that, like perhaps, you know, unsurprisingly, like the presidents, the U.S. presidents have a lot of say. So when you look at, you know, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs, you know, Kennedy is saying and Kennedy is doing, uh, but there's not the perception of or the perspectives of, of, of the Cubans uh, in response to what how Kennedy is or the U.S. and Kennedy as figurehead for U.S. like empire is, is you know, enacting his will or the will of the country over Cuba, um, but there's not that, that other perspective offered to the Cubans in response to what's happening. Yeah, I know you notice that a lot with presidents in particular, right, that they get such they get such leeway for their, you know, nuanced perspectives to be detailed, right? I think of, well, characters like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln come to mind really quickly. So it's like we hear so much about all the things George Washington said about his doubts about slavery when he like did nothing about them, right? like he didn't even enact them. So we get like his inner monologue that he didn't act on. It's like this good faith effort, yet we get these just kind of sweeping or passive kind of takes of, of uh, minoritized or other historically marginalized groups. And I think it's really interesting the way I, I often think in terms of active and passive language, right? I've often thought about that in textbooks, right? They do that a lot of times to withhold like nation state violence, right? Like, like they'll say things like the, you know, a slave was whipped, right? By no, who, who no one knows because they just leave out the agent in it. And so they'll, they'll, they'll make violence just happen kind of from these mythical places. But you all use these four terms, which I think is really interesting saying, sensing, relating, and action. So did those just kind of help you see everything differently that bringing that lens into it, just like bring kind of new insights that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise noticed? Yeah, definitely. So the easiest thing for, for us was to first identify the verb. And so, you know, what is the actor doing? You know, is the actor running? Are they saying? What are they feeling? And so by identifying the verb, we're able to see who's doing the action and then who's, who they're doing the action to. And so that kind of breaks down the sentence and kind of the idea of what is happening in the passage or in this part of history. Are, you know, are Mexican people being passive or are they attacking? You know, how are they being positioned differently? Because in the same paragraph, you can have both, you know, like at the same time, you can have the U.S. saying something to justify their actions as to why they're going to defend Texas, for example. And so we get this really one-sided narrative of history at every point. And so if the language isn't really analyzed, especially verbs, you don't really know who's doing what to who. So that identifying that first part was very, very useful for us. I think it would add to Edgar, like, you know, as, as we engage in the data, you know, it, it's so pervasive, but it's so tacit. And so I think when you apply an SFL lens, like a systemic functional linguistics lens to these passages, then you can really, you know, take apart and see what's happening. And so these subtle messages that, that students will internalize, you know, especially we're in Florida. And so there's a large Latinx contingency of, of high school students, you know, who are receiving these messages, you know, and Edgar said, you know, we did three read textbooks. So over 15 to 20 years of textbook adaptation, like it doesn't matter if you went to high school in, you know, 2008 or in 2018, like whatever textbook is adopted at the time, these messages are sending like this, like, you know, tacit message that gets reified around lack of agency or lack of position or lack of saying. And so, you know, it would be different if, we, if we're seeing shifts, but by analyzing these three different textbooks, they all did similar things with language to position Latinx identity in ways that Latinx people themselves would not position themselves. 
How, how do you think this affects students? I mean, what your experiences, I mean, Edgar, you mentioned you're still in the classroom, um, right? Like, how, how do you think these types of messages in classrooms impact uh, students' experiences and the way they even view history? I think it's a, a really quick disengagement for them where, you know, not learning anything about them, where you know that you belong in U.S. history, but yet you're excluded. And so it kind of makes you really realize that why am I, you know, learning this or why would I even want to take an AP test? on history, that's not even mine, you know, like I'm already, uh, that's already an obstacle for me because I now have to learn someone else's history that's not mine, unfortunately, and that gives someone else, you know, an edge. But in terms of um, students, you know, if you're not really seeing yourself, then where are you gonna finally see yourself? You have to wait till college, potentially to maybe see yourself in history, to be a little bit more critical. And so if students aren't really seeing themselves part of history, they, they might not see themselves part of the country as well. You know, like I'm always being excluded, not just in history, not just in language, but then also in my life, you know, in terms of immigration, all these policies happening. Arizona, when they had that SB, was it 540? And they could stop you for, you know, if you look like an, an immigrant. And so you have these things where you, you're constantly being told that you don't belong because you're, you're constantly being excluded. So at least for me and you know, students who might, you know, are like me that why would we try then? You know, where is that? what's left for us to do to be part of this country um, when we, no one wants us. So we're kind of in this in between where, you know, where, where do we belong and try to make that space for ourselves. And I think that's why we need to be very critical of it and allow teachers to have these tools to make that space for, for students. So Edgar, what you're saying, I, th- I think has really been reflected in a couple of our past episodes. We had Maribel Santiago come on and talk about teaching American, uh, Mexican-American histories. And she talked about the ways that school desegregation is always framed in a black-white um, framing, right? It doesn't oftentimes talk about segregation that has happened specifically against Mexican-American or Latinx uh, students, which there's a long history of that too, especially in Texas. Uh, and not just those groups too, Asian-American students have faced segregation, indigenous students have faced uh, boarding schools and segregation. And and then also, um, but people have been fighting for this for a long time, right? From the Chicano studies movement and ethnic studies movements to uh, we had on Liliana Saldana and Vanessa Sandoval, and they talked about building up Mexican-American studies in Texas, right? And how hard they work to get Mexican-American studies curriculum. And so I think one thing is, is, you know, if a teacher is hearing this, right, and I think all students need to understand Latinx histories, right, in this country, right? Um, it's, not, it's not just Latinx students. I think all students need it. But if you're hearing this, I mean, a lot of people have been working hard to make change. And I think what you all are saying is like, if, if this is happening in your classroom, we have to change it, right? We have to rethink this, this narrative that sometimes exists. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I think, you know, um, we use Latinx as a as an inclusive term, but, you know, I think it's not a monolith, right? And so we have to think about, you know, Afro-Caribbean Latinx identifying individuals. And so there are varied histories and varied stories that are represented across, you know, this, this inclusive term, but there's a lot of distinct histories that shouldn't just, you know, be wrapped up into one, similar to this idea of, you know, the single story of like Africa as a country, not a continent. And so I think there is a wide, you know, background to Latinx identity. And so we're, we're really seeking to, to honor the different stories that are part of the broader communities. So what advice do you have for teachers who are trying to make sure their students are seen and heard in their, in their curriculum? I think one, you know, uh, quick thing to do, you could do is uh, adopt text uh, books that have, you know, Latinx and Afro-Latinx uh, Black authors, you know, that's the first thing and talk about their story as well. You know, they especially with history document-based questions, you know, you can have a lot of 
factual you know recordings they, they can listen to but especially i think with with focusing on the textbook you know really ask the students to analyze and look at what is being said and what is what messages are being told to them you know and teaching them in sfl or even like a micro part of sfl where they can at least identify the verb and the actor will help them not just in this class but other classes and even outside school you know what messages are they being told and how can it be and they become more more critical so i think looking at the language that we see in, in different genres would be a first good path for history teachers i know we're not always looked at as, as language teachers but i think you know we really are and we can really help students uh dive into their history so we could even have like a like a social studies of language component here right <laughs> I mean, I definitely think, yeah, we, I, we definitely need uh, more attention in the field. I think there's a rising group of, you know, upcoming scholars, emerging scholars in our disciplines. And, and I, I'm very excited because I think, you know, we've even for me in the last, you know, I, I started grad school in 2013. But, you know, the changes that we've seen more broadly in social studies, you know, critiquing whiteness and looking at, you know, ind indigeneity and just a lot of the conversations uh, that weren't happening before, and even just you know shifting notions of 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 belonging, as was as was noted earlier, you know, immigration is essentially a, a a topic of belonging. Like who gets to be an American and why, and how is proximity to English or proximity to whiteness granting of that distinction that you belong in this country or not? You know, I'm curious. Are there any in particular stories or narratives or perspectives that that you all think about when you think about that are left out that that you would encourage teachers as as maybe something to to really make sure they include? No, but I, I like Edgar's uh, comment around you know you know either primary text sources or you know I think if 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 we could bring more of that into teaching and learning, you know I think you know how many because because of how you know we know publishing works, right? You know, like it's mostly white people preserving whiteness. And so what would it take for, you know, historically marginalized people to even have the accent, access and agency to become editors or to shape perceptions around these, you know, texts that are created. And I think, you know, more broadly, we're not a tested subject much in, in social studies, but, you know, I think there's the whole, you know, industrial complex around, you know, textbooks and standards and testing reinforces some of these narratives that we see. I do like the concept of, of looking at our textbooks critically about how like the verbiage that they're using. I think that's kind of a neat way to, to at least start to approach this. Uh, and so I do appreciate the fact that you brought that up. That's definitely something that I will absolutely can, you know, work on doing it in my course. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think also it, it also helps with writing too, though. You know, you, you have these students now understanding, you know, how sentences are constructed not just in their text, which will eventually kind of carry over into their writing. So it is very useful. And I've done, you know, SFL a little bit with my students too, where we did do, you know, the analysis of, you know, the Haitian revolution, which, you know, in world history, they literally gave them one paragraph like that. So oh my funny. gosh. I think we use the same and, book. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I taught ninth grade. <laughs> and so, you know, like just looking at that paragraph, you know, what's being said about your history in this paragraph and breaking that down and then even asking them, so what is your history like? You know, and Steve, what do you know about your history? And so seeing how you can maybe construct something else with them. But again, it would help with writing definitely. Uh, when you say like something as important and weighty as the Haitian revolution, getting a paragraph it like I literally had flashbacks to the the conclusion of things fall apart for anyone that's that's read the end of that. I always felt like the mm -hmm. end of that book was like the most powerful ending about oh, like the, the ways that 
yeah, the ways that colonialism tells its stories, right? Because the, you have to read this whole book and it's engrossing. And at the end, gosh, I don't, spoiler alert, if you haven't read Chinua Chibbe's Thing Fall, <laughs> Things Fall Apart, but at the end of the book, they're like, you know, maybe this is worth a paragraph. Well, maybe not a paragraph, but, you know, so it's basically just something very minimal. And so to reduce history to, to that, we know that so much is being left out. So thank you all for doing this work and bringing attention to it in social studies. So thank you so much, Edgar Diaz and, and Matt Daru for, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Where can our uh, listeners find y'all's work online? So I'm active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Darumat, D-E-R-O-O-M-A-T. I'm also on Twitter at Mr. Spell it out, M-I-S-T-E-R, Edgar Diaz. All right. So we will definitely make sure people can uh, have a conversation. Just tweet them your great ideas after you read this article, quote your favorite parts, you know, take screenshots of your favorite lines, highlight them and, and send it to them both on Twitter. We looked at, we definitely look forward to continuing the conversation. We do too. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Now at the Vision of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, we get it. We're there. We're also on Twitter, Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook sometimes. And of course, if you haven't already, and really, please tell your friends, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and literally almost anywhere you'd like us to be. And once you're done giving all these problematic textbooks one-star ratings, you can hop over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. We will read those on the air. Dan, Dan, we have a five-star review. All right. We've had a few lately. That's awesome. I know. It's very nice. This one is from Brett Levy. One. Thanks for your podcast. You're welcome. That's me saying you're welcome, not the... Uh, I love the <laughs> Kenneth Davis episode. Lots of great shows, too. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. That's, that also sounds like an order. We must keep up the good work. I don't want to... We can't let it fall off a little, even a little, Michael. No. No. <laughs> we shan't. And, and you know who's not letting slacking off at all is Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas. Zach uh, We'd like to thank him for his editing skills. And you can find me on Twitter so I can join those conversations at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. <laughs>